Welcome to Adoption Now, sharing real stories of the joys and challenges of adoption. Now here's the host of Adoption Now, April Fallon. Hi, welcome to Adoption Now, telling your adoption story. I'm your host, April Fallon. Today we have a story from New York. Renee Hedick has adopted from China. Yay, our first story from China. Renee, thank you for applying to be on Adoption Now. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Okay, so you're an adoptive mother of four. You're a licensed social worker, and you've written a book about your journey, correct? That's correct, yes. What is that book called? The book's called My Kids Know More Than Me, and it talks about 15 life lessons from my foster and adopted children over the last 25 years of parenting. Well, let's talk about that journey. So you are a single mother, and how did you start this whole process? I actually started as a foster parent. Always had a love for children and wanted to give back to my community and decided to be a foster mom. So I fostered eight children over five years, and it was an inspiring experience, but also a heart-wrenching experience, having to say goodbye to all those children. So after I said goodbye to my last group of foster children, I decided to become a forever parent through adoption and then started adopting my four kids from China and Guatemala. So let's talk about your first journey. Sure. So my first daughter, who's now 17, came into my family at the age of 11 months old from an orphanage in the south of China. I applied to become a parent through China two years prior. And I finally got the phone call to say, you have a daughter. And I was excited to go, couldn't wait to get there. And I said, it'll probably be about a month before you can go and pick her up. So I kind of settled into that and got to know the other families that I was going to travel with. And, and then very unexpectedly, I got a phone call from my agency saying, hey, you can go two weeks earlier. You're really going to have to hustle to get your visa and get packed and get airline tickets. And you're going to travel with families you don't know. But I decided, you know, I want my daughter in my arms. We expedited everything. We hustled and we went two weeks earlier than we expected to. And thank goodness that we did. Because when I arrived in China, I met my daughter on a Sunday evening at 7 outside of the elevator doors on the 11th floor of the White Swan Hotel. And she was very, very ill. And if we had waited those two additional weeks, she probably wouldn't be with us. Wow. Um, So, you know, that evening, you know, she was getting to know us. Um, You know, I was concerned, but I wasn't alarmed. She just seemed to be in shock, which I would expect of any child. And the next day she was, you know, perky but refusing to eat and just a little lethargic. But, you know, the adoption field facilitator said, oh, she just has a little cold. She'll be fine. Let's go. So off we go to the adoption offices to notarize everything and put my red thumbprint on the adoption paperwork. And throughout that day, which was very hot, very humid, very crowded, she just got sicker and sicker and sicker and sicker to the point where I kept saying, please help her, please help her. She's not okay. She doesn't have a cold. And finally, our adoption facilitator held her and immediately called for the hotel doctor to come over who immediately sent us to an emergency room in a developing hospital in the middle of nowhere in China. And they immediately admitted her. We were in a hospital for four days. 
and they saved her life. She was very ill, extremely malnourished. She had pneumonia. She had strep throat. Oh, my goodness. She was dehydrated. She was really in peril. And that hospital saved her. Absolutely saved her. Wow. Yeah. And we got discharged the day that we needed to leave to go to the next province in China to finish the adoption. So we weren't sure we were going to make it, but we made it. Yeah, we were there for four days in the hospital. And, you know, it was interesting. The hospital was like stepping back in time by 30 years. You know, they had glass IV bottles. They had suction cup EKG machines. You know, it was just a very interesting experience. And even with their medical technology that was way behind the U.S., they still were able to provide her with a diagnosis and a treatment And here she is 17 years later. That's unbelievable. I think one of the aspects that's really difficult is when you're handed a sick baby is it's traumatic for everyone. It's traumatic enough to be handed a baby that you don't know and they don't know you. But then when you have to take them right away to the hospital, it's hard to bond because now you're with doctors. And how did that go? I mean, did you have the facilitator with you? I did, yeah. We had a facilitator with me the entire time in the hospital. Her English was minimal, but she was the most lovely young woman, kept my daughter entertained, did the best she could to translate for me. She was wonderful, wonderful. But yeah, it was interesting because because of her illness, there was feelings of blocked attachment because, you know, I didn't understand the language. I didn't understand medically what was happening. Nobody was able to communicate with me. And I didn't know how to help her. I barely knew her. Right. How could I soothe her? How could I help her? So in one sense, it made that attachment process a little harder. But on the flip side of that, because her needs were so dramatically high, I mean, her life literally depended upon me that our attachment actually was like on steroids and I actually and she actually you know attached and bonded faster because her needs were so high so I actually felt a connection to her I think much faster than if she hadn't been ill even with those roadblocks her name is Rose Rose is that her birth name or did you change her name that's her given English name oh yeah she's a beautiful girl and It was interesting because when I told my parents I was planning to adopt from China, they just called this child in the future their precious flower. I don't even know why they called her that. They just said, oh, our precious flower will come home from China. And thus we came up with Rose as her name. Aw, that is so sweet. Okay, so you brought her home and she was healthy otherwise. She got through that. Well, she certainly got through it. Can I say that that initial 11 months in the orphanage and her significant illnesses still have an impact on her today? They do. She still has medical challenges to this day and will probably for the rest of her life. Were you looking for special needs? No, I was told that this was a healthy, typical child. And certainly, you know, she wasn't. But I can't imagine my life without her. Mm -hmm. But do you feel that you were prepared I don't think you ever feel prepared Mm -hmm. as a parent. Right. So, you know, certainly in the moment, there wasn't a choice of preparedness or not. It was, 
her life depended on me and I have to step up. As I reflect back, can I say that, oh, I felt very prepared to parent a child with medical challenges? Of course not. But that's what reality is. And, you know, I've grown so much because of her challenges and her strengths and the blessings that she brings to our family that I can't imagine it any other way. Is China still open? It is open. Families who are looking to parent a young child who has what I call the potential for normal growth and development, those families are waiting eight or nine years for a child. Children who have special needs, whether it be a minor medical special need that can be corrected like a lip or palate or a child with cerebral palsy or a hearing impairment or limb deformities or heart conditions, any child with a special need like those, those children are actually waiting for families. And the majority of kids coming home from China are the children in those programs, what we call waiting child programs. Typically, a family, once they apply to China, is asked to consider a child within a few weeks to a couple of months. And then the children are home typically within 9 to 12 months of that. Okay, so Rose is home with you now, and you're attaching, and she's growing. How long did you wait before you wanted to adopt again? (laughs) Well, I knew the process in China was a two-year process. So once... Rose was home and medically stable, I immediately started the paperwork to adopt a second daughter from China because I knew I didn't want to parent only one child. I knew that I wanted to parent more than one child and I wanted my children to have siblings. So I started the paperwork almost immediately and then it was two years later that her younger sister, who's 15, her name is Pearl, joined our family. Okay, so I have a question about how much it's going to cost a family. Because if a family is listening right now and they're thinking, we would really love to pursue China, how much money should they be looking to save? Well, it depends. I, you know, I would say that overall costs involved with adopting a child from China ranges between twenty five dollars and $30,000. Know, however, that there are grants available for children with special needs. There are low-interest loans available for families. There is the federal tax credit available for families where you can recoup through tax forgiveness up to a little over $13,000. So, you know, the cost may be around $30,000, but the actual expense out of pocket will be less than that. And you just have to go over one time? For China, yes. You're there for um, about two weeks. Okay. So let's talk about Pearl. What's her story? Pearl came to me at nine months old. Actually, at her nine-month-old birthday, I met her in a government office in China. She's also from the South. Every one of my children's stories are unique, but hers know that we were in China in the middle of the SARS epidemic. People remember that. It was a respiratory disease in China that was rampant, and we were in the middle of that with face masks on. It was very interesting. So we were in the middle of China during that time, which just made it much more interesting because of the health risks. But for her, what's interesting about her story is she came to me as a healthy child. She did have ear infections, which a lot of institutional kids do, so that was easy. Got a quick antibiotic and she was all set. 
But for her, she came to me at nine months old, but developmentally, she was closer to like a two, three month old. Extremely motor delayed, um, had difficulty holding her head up. She couldn't roll over. She couldn't reach out to grasp the toy. She wasn't smiling. She was completely avoiding us. So she had significant developmental delays. And what's interesting is her ability to be resilient was profound, where within two months of coming home, she was developmentally on target. Wow. And not only was she developmentally on target, in two months she gained two pounds, two inches, and two shoe sizes. Aw, it's so encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the capacity of our kids to be resilient is just immense. And in her case, what's really miraculous is this baby who was in my arms at nine months old who couldn't hold her head up is now an incredible athlete, which I could have never predicted from the minute I met her. And, you know, she, she couldn't roll over. Right, you know, right. It's just, I mean, truly miraculous. It's one of those stories that really all adoptive parents go into hoping for is that you get this child that needs parents and your love really does help them. Your care and your love and having a parent devoted to you changes everything for them. And it's just amazing that she's an athlete. What does she play? Well, right now she's playing tennis and then the winter she'll play basketball and then she's an avid softball player and she plays softball year round, you know, starting to look at playing for a college someday. So that is so cool. Yeah. She's a lot of fun. She's a shortstop. Okay. So so you have Rose and Pearl Mm -hmm. and how long before you thought I need a third? Yep. So Marco is my third child. So I took a break in there because what happened, there's a four year gap between Pearl and Marco and there's a four-year gap because after Rose came home and literally changed her life and changed my life, I decided to abandon my old career. I was working in schools, and I decided to devote my life to adoption. So for three years, I went back to school part-time and got my master's in social work. So I took a break from adopting while I was getting my degree so that I could then work in the field of adoption. So once I finished my degree, got settled into my new career, um, I was working for an adoption agency. And occasionally we worked with an international adoption placement agency and they called and they said, oh, we've got this little boy in Guatemala that we can't find a family for. And I thought, okay, well, I'll look. So I, for two months, I called every client I knew that might be open to a little boy from Guatemala and nobody would consider this little boy. So I called back the adoption agency and said, I've looked and I've looked and I've looked and I can't find a family, but you know what? I can be this child's family. So they said, great. So I quickly did all my paperwork, got everything done, submitted everything to Guatemala. I actually sent toys and clothes and books to this little boy, you know, can't waiting to meet him, have him join our family. And then about halfway through the adoption process, his birth mother decided to parent, which I'm glad for. I'm glad that this little boy was able to stay in his birth family, but I was also devastated mm-hmm. that this little boy that I had dreamed about coming into our family wasn't going to come into our family. 
the the adoption agency said, well, we'll give you some time to think things through and kind of grieve the loss of this little guy. And I said, okay, that's fine. So two days later, (laughs) they called and said, hey, we have another little boy who's only two months old, but he has some risk factor. They believe that he was born prematurely. Would you consider him? And without hesitation, I said, of course. And that's Marco. I just want to stop you really quick. It's just so crazy to me that the birth mother changed her mind. You don't hear that in an international adoption. In fact, that's why a lot of people go overseas is because they don't want a birth mother to change her mind. And so she had placed him and then decided to parent. And so if you are avoiding domestic adoption to go overseas, it could still happen. And so don't do it just because you want to avoid that scenario. Do it because you really feel led to be in that country. Correct. Yeah, and it doesn't happen often. There's only a handful of countries that that would happen in, and Guatemala was one of them. And I knew that risk going in to it myself. You know, China, on the other hand, you know, all of these children are abandoned children. So, you know, the chance that a birth family will return is minuscule. Okay, we have to take a break. But when we come back, we want to hear about baby Marco. You're listening to Adoption Now. I'm April Fallon. We'll be right back. Hi, this is April Fallon, the host of Adoption Now, telling your adoption story. We're going through some changes at Adoption Now. We're working on a new website and changing around our podcast just a bit. We love all of your feedback, ideas for shows, and applications to be on the show. Email us anytime at april at adoption-now.com. We would love for you to subscribe to Adoption Now podcast by clicking on the subscribe button on iTunes. Then you'll get a new story as soon as the podcast is released. Again, thank you for listening to Adoption Now. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Adoption Now. I'm your host, April Fallon. Today we're talking to Renee Hedick, and she's from New York, and she is sharing her adoption story. She has many. She has four. She's gone to China twice. And so we're at the part of her story where she has decided to adopt from Guatemala, and she was matched to a child, and the mother decided to parent. So she's grieving that loss. And I think that that is interesting in your story just because your agency was allowing you to grieve that loss. And it is a loss. It is a loss for a family when you're matched and it doesn't work out. It's very difficult. Even if you have other children and you're still busy parenting, you were still excited and there was that hope for a child. And so even though you're happy he went with his birth family, now you're matched to a little baby that's premature. So were you nervous about getting a premature baby? Because the babies that you had adopted before were all older. Well, by the time Marco came to my family, he was 10 months old. Okay. And, you know, at the time they believed he was premature, but nobody could really verify that because we don't know where he was born, when he was born. He came into care about a month old when he was five pounds at that time. So I think they're presuming. And based on the medical challenges he currently has, they all are indicative of children of prematurity. So it makes sense. And surprisingly, I wasn't nervous about it. You think I should have been, probably, but I wasn't. I think the preparation my two girls gave me brought me to the fact that I wasn't concerned. 
because both of my first two girls came with very unexpected strengths, very unexpected challenges, and I wouldn't change a thing or a moment with them. So when they said, you know what, this little guy may have some risks, it didn't really even make me pause. I just jumped right in. How old was he when you were matched? He was two months old, and then the process in Guatemala took a number of months, eight months, so he came home at 10 months old. So for the eight months, are you in contact with him? I mean, he's just a baby, but are you sending things over? What does that look like for an adoptive parent waiting? So I was able to send him a care package. He was in foster care. And then they would send me monthly updates, medical updates and pictures, and just kind of kept me connected. Okay, but were you just dying to go over there? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. If you're carrying a baby, it's nine months, so you're waiting and waiting. But you know he's out there and waiting for you, but you have two other children with you. I mean, it's not like you could jump on a plane and go over there. You had to wait until your paperwork was all in line. And add to that, nobody in my family knew about this little guy because my child was in the era of Guatemala's closing. So there was a lot of controversy around Guatemala and whether or not the United States would continue to allow children to immigrate through Guatemala adoption. So I wasn't certain he was going to come home at all. So until I knew that, yes, he's coming, get a plane ticket, did I tell my daughters? And they were thrilled and excited and jumping up and down. And, of course, they may not think that now when he's 11 and bothering them, but, you know, back then they were excited to have a brother. (laughs) You're good at keeping a secret because I don't think I could not tell somebody. I mean, I'm terrible at secrets. Everybody knows that about me. Just don't tell me because I can't even stand it. It comes out some way. But... (laughs) I could not hold that in for that long. But you made a choice to protect your family from that loss. And a lot of parents decide to do that. So what was it like when you first saw him? It was interesting. He came into the hotel room with his foster mom and he was very stoic and kind of looked at me but wouldn't interact with me in any way. And then, you know, eventually his foster mom had to say goodbye. And she handed him to me and... She said goodbye, gave him a kiss, and walked out of the room. And then all of a sudden, he just let out this huge sigh and fell asleep in my arms. I thought, no, wait a minute, that's way too easy, right? Right. So I thought, okay, well, he's sound asleep. I'll lay him down. Well, that was a major mistake. The minute I laid him off my chest, he screamed for the next four hours unconsolable. There's nothing I could do to soothe him. He was just an absolute trauma and terror, and it was horrifying. He eventually did fall asleep four hours later, but, you know, ever since that moment, he's what I call my Velcro baby. He's a little one who, you know, doesn't get far from the chest. Even in Guatemala, if you even separated him to change his diaper, he'd scream and cry. You know, now at 11, he'll separate, obviously, but, you know. He still is known as my Velcro baby. <laughs> what advice do you have for parents that go overseas and meet their child for the first time and that caregiver that they know is about to walk out of the room and you're about to parent? Yeah, respond to the child's needs, whenever they are. And, you know, the one you have to calm yourself because this is the most important moment of your life. And, you know, your adrenaline's flowing, you're nervous, you're excited, you're overwhelmed by emotion. 
And you just need to take a step back and take a deep breath yourself and say, okay, what does my child need? And they'll tell you if you really listen. And what we typically see is one of three responses out of a kid. And I saw all of these. One is they fight. These are the kids, like I said, Mark was screamed bloody murder for four hours and kicked and hit. And he was fighting against me. And then we see the kids who flee. They just want to get away. And they, you know, you put them down and they crawl away. Or you let go of their hand and they're gone. In fact, I lost my eight-year-old in the airport for a couple of minutes because he just took off. Or they freeze, which is what my 15-year-old Pearl did. She just shut down. I'm not going to deal with this. It's too stressful. I'm just going to shut down. And most of the kids go through one of those three or all of those three things in those first few days. And they just have to recognize it and support them through it and know that they'll get through it and you'll get through it. I think that's key, getting through it and realizing that the child's going to be okay. Because for me, I think I would... It would be so heartbreaking to take them from their caregiver, even though that foster mom wasn't going to adopt him, you know? No. And so it was a better long-term situation to have, obviously, a mother. But you think about going into that situation, you think how difficult for a little person to really understand and help them heal through that. So how long were you in Guatemala? We were just there for a week. What was it like when you brought him home to see the girls? Oh, they were thrilled. They met him at the airport with balloons and signs and, you know, they wanted to help feed him and clothe him. And yeah, they loved him immediately. So you have three little kids. What were their ages when you brought Marco home? Uh, Four and six. Wow. You had your hands full. Yeah, it was a, a busy place. Yeah. And you're just a single mom. How did you do that? I had a lot of support. I certainly had family support. My parents, my sisters, my brother had great neighbors, fabulous neighbors. To this day, I have the best neighbors ever. You know, and you just work together as a community. I think that's really important. The support that you have can either make or break you. And so being prepared before you bring the child home and rallying the troops together because you know that you can't do it alone. Even In the best case scenario, I think about our situation and I'm like, I could not do it if I didn't have so many great friends and such a great church and such a great family really supporting me and helping us as parents through it as the child is attaching or taking the other ones when we're bringing home a new one, you know, and so everybody feels loved and cared for and nobody's forgotten. Did you find that when you brought him home that the other ones were like, wait a second, what's our place? No, I, I expected that, but I didn't really see that. You know, I just was very conscious of it and involved them and spent time with each of them. And the two girls have a very special bond with each other, and they supported each other. To this day, they're, you know, the two girls are inseparable. Do you think it's important to adopt two of the same ethnicity? It's a good question because now I have three uh, Chinese-American children and one Guatemalan child. And it'd be interesting to listen to him, the Guatemalan child, because he's, you know, the one that doesn't look like his siblings. I certainly can say to you the two girls feel it's important that they have each other. Mm -hmm. And I certainly see it in them that it's important. And there are times when I think Marco feels a little left out of the group because he's not of the same ethnic heritage. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I do. I think it is important. And I think if Guatemala had remained open, you know, I probably would have, you know, adopted again. But, it clo- you know, I think Marco was one of the last children out of Guatemala before it closed. So. Okay, so how yeah. long did you wait before you decided on the 4th? Gosh, it was a long time. Marco would have been eight at the time that I adopted. My last child, his name is Willabine. You know, and I really wanted to have a brother for Marco, and I wanted to parent another son. But I was certainly not looking to parent a baby. My kids were getting older, I was getting older, and I had parented older children. I was a foster parent for older children. So I wanted a little bit older child, so I decided to adopt a child out of the waiting child program in China, and I brought home a little guy right before his eighth birthday. So Willabine is nine months younger than Marco. What's his story? (laughs) I set out to parent a child who had a special need. My expectation was that this was a child with a hand and arm deformity, which he does have. He has radial dysplasia. And I was told that he was a typical child otherwise. However, that is not the case. And although I had question marks in my mind about this child, when I asked the questions of the adoption agency or a pediatrician who reviewed his information, you know, I was reassured that no, he's a typical child. He just has this arm deformity. You know, you're worrying about things that aren't there. And then we traveled to China, everybody, all three of my kids, my sister, myself, traveled to China, and I met him in a government office. And the moment he came over to me, I knew that our lives had been changed forever and that this child was a multiply disabled child who was going to need lifelong care. So this little guy, Willabine, yes, has a hand and arm deformity. He does. But in addition to that, um, he has spina bifida occulta. He has a heart defect. He has other hand deformities on the other hand. He has cognitive deficits. For example, he's now 10. He has the academic skills of like a four-year-old, and he is autistic. And he has language skills, I would say, more typical of maybe a two-year-old. So we went from expecting a little guy with a hand deformity that was going to be, you know, in third grade and running around and playing with his siblings and playing with the neighbor's kids to, you know, a significantly impaired child who's going to need lifelong care. So it's been a big adjustment. He's been with us for a little over two years now, and we continue to adjust. And I think we'll, you know, I think that process will just evolve as he evolves. But, you know, certainly was not what we were expecting. So at that moment, was there ever a thought where you just said, I don't know if I can do this? Initially... And it's interesting because I think I talked about the kids go through either fight, flight, or freeze responses, right, when they meet their parents for the first time. I did the same thing when I met him, and I went through a freeze response. I, had, I didn't know what to do. I was shocked. I was in a freeze mode. A few days later, when I, my mind was back a little bit, you know, my sister and I really hashed it out. And were there moments when I said, I don't know if I can do this, and I don't know if it's fair to my other kids? Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to lie about that yet. But I can also say in the next breath, I said, 
but I could never not provide a family for this child. At one point, the adoption agency actually said to me, take him back to the orphanage. And I, I, I can't do that. I, you know, they even said it's a nice orphanage. Well, you know what? I visited that orphanage. This little guy was 34 pounds at eight. You know, he was in communal living. They had very little. I am not sending any child to live in an orphanage. You know, so were there doubts that I could parent successfully? Yes. But the alternative was a life sentence for this child in an orphanage. I can't do that to any child, any child. This was a big change for all three of your kids. Were they all on board? Mm -hmm. I mean, it comes and goes. I would say, you know, the older girls kind of accepted him pretty quickly. Marco, you know, continues to struggle a little. And understandably so. You know, he's expecting a brother that he can pal around with and play with, and he doesn't have that. And then, you know, they're still trying to figure out how to play together. But the older two have, you know, certainly well-bonded with him and have a special relationship with him. And Rilla Bean will be with you for the rest of your life. Correct. That is just so amazing, really. Mm-hmm. And... It's just hard for me to wrap my head around an agency not telling you everything right up front. Right. Not that you would change anything, but how can another family know all the details before they get there and be prepared before? Is that possible? You know, in the past, I would have said it is because you just keep asking the questions and you keep demanding information, which I did. And now that I'm where I sit, I can say to you, is it 100% that you can know? No. No. You know, every adoption has unknowns and risks. And, you know, as a prospective adoptive parent, you have to go with your eyes wide open and realize that that's the case. What is the greatest thing that you have learned on this journey? Wow. Well, there's 15 of them, according to my book. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Right. But it's funny that you asked that because when we were putting this book together, my kids put it together with me, and I asked them, I said, what do you think is the most important thing that you taught me? And the older three immediately said, expect the unexpected and be okay with that. Wow. Um, And I think as you hear all four of my kids' stories, all of them came with unexpected talents and strengths and blessings and challenges. So I think, you know, I would agree with my kids that that's probably the most valuable lesson they've taught me. Where can people get your book? It's available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. If you just put in My Kids Know More Than Me or my name, it'll pop up for you. What's in this book? Their stories? It is. What it is is it looks at 15 things that I've learned from my kids like expect the unexpected and be okay with that. Mm-hmm. or resiliency, or persistence, or forgiveness. It also has a chapter about birth parents in here. But it looks at those lessons through my kids' stories. So every chapter has a lesson in it, but then I've written my kids' stories to them. And whether it was the hospital story where Rose almost died, or if it was the McDonald's Happy Meal toy story, or it was meeting Willa Bean for the first time, whatever the story was, 
the stories written to my kids and it then illustrates the lesson that I learned. And it also includes stories about my foster children. My foster kids are disguised so that you don't know who they are. But my four children, what was really interesting when we sat down to talk about the book is they wanted their names to be known. They said, we're proud of who we are. We're proud of the fact that we've taught you so much. We want people to know who we are. And not only do they want me to use their names, they put pictures of themselves in the book of them as the baby in the orphanage and of them today. And that was important to them. I love that. That is so encouraging to me as an adoptive mom is that's what I want my children to be like when they grow up. I want them to be so proud of their story. And they love it already. Children love to hear their stories. Even though there's pieces in there that aren't great, they want to hear as much information as they can and start them off young so they know that story and so they can own that story. And that story can be a story with a happy ending. Right. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Renee. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Will you send me a picture so I can put it on Facebook? I'd be happy to. I'm sure everybody wants to see your darling kids. Don't forget to like Adoption Now on Facebook. And remember, all of our podcasts are available on iTunes. I'm your host, April Fallon. See you next week. Thanks for joining us for today's Adoption Now. If you would like to tell your story or for more information about Adoption Now, visit the website at adoption-now.com or find it on Facebook. And join us next week at the same time as we share another adoption story on 670 AM KLTT.